Okay, today's Nordic future maker is Jutta Smarsen, who is Chief Communications Officer at Space Nation, where he works with astronaut training and other space-related stuff. In addition, he works in Africa with startups and entrepreneurship. He also works with cities and regions and countries around branding and reputation. And then we have to ask you about your McDonald's in Iceland before we finish today, which I guess you're used to as well. Yes. Um, On top of all of this, you speak at conferences all over the world. Yep. And you've got five kids as well. Correct. And a dog and and a turtle and a rabbit. (laughs) <laughs> so we, we we can't hang around we need to go in with, with all of that going on so until recently i had no idea that neil armstrong and the kind of other apollo astronauts trained in iceland it's correct and uh, a lot of people in iceland didn't even know until recently and for me it was actually uh, quite an interesting discovery there was some discussion about the astronauts having trained in iceland and then a friend of mine was going through stuff at the company he was working and he found some old pictures from the astronauts and he posted one of those pictures on Facebook and he said, here we have uh, one of the Apollo astronauts, uh, Alan B, but who's that Icelandic guy that's with him? We haven't been able to recognize him. And I looked at the picture and I saw, wait, wait, that's my grandfather. No way. Yes. So he flew with uh, the Apollo astronauts. So my grandfather taught Neil Armstrong to fly. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> but he took okay. him out flying. So, so he was the national champion in gliding. And uh, uh, so he took them gliding, which is, of course, uh, uh, an important thing for astronauts. Uh, and it's a beautiful landscape to fly in in Iceland. So they did, they did all of this. So, so the training and the, the stuff that they were doing originally was in Iceland. Yes, correct. And then what you're doing now is kind of, it's not reenacting, but you're doing astronauts training and yes so it's not reenacting um we do in iceland we have two expeditions that are planned one called interstellar which is on a glacier in iceland uh, where we look at adaptation to extreme environments endurance and leadership skills where we look into the polar explorers and how they uh, you know scott almondson and shackleton and how they planned their trips and what they did right and wrong and then we have another trip which is called the moon landing expedition which is north of the glacier in the black deserts and around the Aska caldera and that's the same location where the apple astronauts trained so we do there some of the same experiments as they did when they were preparing uh, for their trip to the moon wow so how, how does that work it's kind of a tourism thing people book a space and you you take yes. them off yes so uh, um the people that are attending uh, come to us for two reasons. One of the reasons is because they actually want to travel to space and they want to prepare themselves. And, and we offer that uh, preparation. So uh, our program is designed in cooperation with NASA. We have a NASA Space Act agreement and in cooperation with Axiom Space, which is a very interesting startup run by Mike Sofredini, uh, who used to run the ISS for NASA for 10 years. And now he's created a, a commercial company which has the plan to take over the ISS. And they've already uh, gotten permission from NASA to build the next module to the ISS, which will be privately run, which is really exciting. So that's a, a really a space hotel that, that they're developing. So all of this is basically what your business is based around? Yes. So we are preparing people for, for this, uh, you know, for the new space aids. And, and because we can expect thousands of jobs in space in the next uh, 10 years. And then the other hand is is people who just really want a different kind of an adventure and experience uh, and the leadership training that is included. Because 
I mean, if, if we think about it, uh, to become an astronaut, you, you need some serious skills. You, you're staying in ISS for weeks or months, even in a very tiny little space with the same people. So you have to have very good social skills and team building skills. Uh, you need to keep your head cool in, in stressful situations. You need to be able to learn fast. You need to be able to adapt. And these are all skills that are, are very useful in, in corporate life or even family life as well. So there's this real world experience. Yes. And then there's a digital experience that goes with it as well. Yes. That's something that will come on later because what we really want to do is make uh, space accessible for everyone. Currently, you have to well, have a European or, or American passport, or now Indian or Chinese as well, uh, to get into space. And there are only about 550 people that have actually been to space. Uh, we want to change this. And uh, with the commercialization of space, this really is changing. You don't have to be within the government. Uh, you don't have to come from the military. Uh, you can be a normal person. And we also want the, the knowledge and the training to be accessible to normal people. And most of all, and this is the most important part, is that we want to spread the overview effect. And the overview effect is what every astronaut has talked about since Yuri Gagarin was the first man to go into space. And it's when you see the planet from above and you realize it's just one little entity. And, and Carl Sagan called it the pale blue dot. You know, when we realize how tiny we are, how fragile we are, and that it's just one ecosystem that we're living in. And it's just that, that humans are just one species. And our challenges that we have here on planet Earth are common challenges that are only solved when we work together. So from space, you don't see any, any boundaries or borders or different nationalities or anything like that. So you've got the, the two things. So in our lifetime, you think space becomes a destination that yes. people can access? I'm convinced. It, it took me by surprise. I started working in this industry two years ago. And I mean, I'd always read the news and all that, but I didn't realize how far a lot of companies are actually in developing the products and, and the, the infrastructure that's needed. And the way I see it, everyone's talking about SpaceX and a lot of people are talking about Blue Origin, which is Jeff Bezos' company. And we know about Virgin Galactic, which is Richard Branson's company. But what they're really providing is the infrastructure. And it's the infrastructure then that thousands of companies can then build on top of. So it's a little bit like when electricity came. You know, Edison discovered the electricity and, and developed that. But the real revolution for people wasn't electricity per se, but all the applications you could build on top of it, the radio, the washing machine, the fridge. Same with the internet. The internet is fantastic and we could send emails to each other. But then uh, uh, we started developing companies like Facebook and Google and Airbnb and, and Uber and, and uh, PayPal and everything else that we use the internet for today. So it just shows that, that we still have no clue uh, what space has to offer. And I'm very excited to see that. So you're thinking of it as... Virgin and Jeff Bezos and SpaceX are, are providing a platform. Precisely. And then you're, you're kind of going one step ahead already to think about the possibilities that you can build on that platform. Correct. That's something where it takes tourism to another dimension. Yes. I can't get my head around the fact that that could be in our lifetime. Yes. People just, instead of going to the airport and hopping on a plane, they're going and hopping on, onto something that will take them much, much further. Yes. And you can imagine, you know, when, when honeymoons uh, today, the, the, the ultimate honeymoon destination is an island in Fiji, private island or something like that. In 10, 15 years time, it will be the moon. I don't know. One of the things that I find fascinating about the moon is um, gravity. 
And we have 16% of the gravity on Earth, on the moon, which means that everything is just you know, one eighth of, of the weight. And we can imagine everything that you can do. And I don't know, I mean, you've probably seen the film Matrix. Yep. And I don't know if you remember the scene where they're installing Kung Fu skills in, in what's his name, Ned? Uh, Neo. Neo, Neo. Yeah. And, and they are flying in the air and they are battling. I'm picturing a dojo on the moon where you can practice moon foo <laughs> in just a fraction of the gravity. So when you jump and do your kicks, you don't need any strings to keep you up. You can actually hang in the air for a long time. So you've got this whole different kind of thing with sport and leisure yes, and hobbies yes, and everything yes. that you can do. And this will be, you know, live broadcast from the moon, you know, the, the, the uh, universal championship in moon foo, uh, you know. <laughs> This is just one of the ideas you can throw out there. But, but I mean, the options are, are just, you know, they're, they're limited only by our imagination. So the first thing is it brings people together. Yes. It gives people a different perspective that um, actually we're all the same on this planet when, when we think of it that way. Yes. But then the second thing is it opens up all sorts of other avenues for and possibilities for different things. Yes. Which and is, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to build excitement around space because it's a really cool thing. Um, but also this perspective on Earth and, and remembering that, that we have an ecosystem here that we really need to take care of. And that is truly unique. And I think once you experience space, you realize the value of what we have here and, you know, the air we can breathe and the plants that can grow and, and uh, you know. Because that whole thing for you, it, it's kind of more than a job for you. Is I was looking at how many countries you've visited and the, the stuff that you've done and the places that you've been and th this whole thing. I live by it. So I, I try to ignore borders. And I started that long before I joined Space Nation. And I actually, I hold an unofficial world record. I didn't have a witness. I recorded it, but that wasn't enough. Uh, which is crossing uh, 100 borders in the least amount of time without going right back into the country I came from. Okay. And I did that in minus 58 minutes and 36 seconds. So you're going backwards. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So I started in Finland. So I went to the Trerikshrösan, uh, which is the, the three border point between Norway, Finland and Sweden. And so I started in Finland. Uh, I, I went skiing. Uh, from a village called Kilpisjärvi, 11 kilometers, took off my skis where I came to the cairn and, and then I started the timing and I ran around the cairn as fast <laughs> as I could <laughs> until I had 33 uh, rounds and one third, uh, meaning that I ended in Norway. So, and the time difference is one hour. So you just so, kept crossing the border, crossing the border, and yes. then you had the time difference. <laughs> <laughs> So, but yes, and, and, and uh, I, I try to live by this. Uh, uh, I've traveled all over the world and uh, I, I love getting to know the people. And I think that's one of the biggest perks of my job because uh, uh, when I work with place branding, I don't go to a place as a tourist. Uh, I go there uh, to really get to know the culture and the people and the influences in, in the destination that I'm in. And it gives me a different perspective and, and uh, you really connect with people. And, and I love that. And it doesn't matter where in the world I am. Uh, people are, are everywhere so friendly and so lovely and, and think in the same way. They have the same wishes and, and needs and desires. Um, and then it's just politics that are spoiling it. When you talk about politics, you tend to keep away from it. 
I've noticed. But but you do have this thing of never waste a good crisis. When bad things happen, it's, of course, a very bad thing. But very often it opens up access to the media. So we have to realize that and we have to be prepared and we have to think about, okay, where are we going from here? So you will not be judged on what happened. You are primarily judged on how you react to what happened. So you need to react in the correct way. You need to grab that attention and you need to own the narrative and you need to build it from there. And Iceland did manage to do that in the economic collapse in 2008. But in the volcanic eruption of 2010, Iceland managed to do that. And they managed to grab that attention. And, and it's, of, of course, easier when it's not a political event. And a volcanic eruption is, is non-political. Uh, <clears throat> so it makes it easier. Uh, Iceland was successful in, in, in grabbing that attention and, and uh, showcasing, okay, what is this crazy little island in the middle of the North Atlantic that can ground planes over entire Europe? Yeah. Um, why haven't we heard about it? And then you hear about the volcanoes and the glaciers and, and uh, this tiny little nation and happy people. <laughs> so it kind of built, built from, there's a problem that gave them attention. Yes. And then it's kind of built, built from there. Yes. So journalists wanted to know more. And uh, we invited journalists to come to Iceland and we helped them get good stories to communicate. Uh, when you have a country like the UK or the US, you have a very strong existing identity and you don't change that overnight. Um, although UK has been doing yeah. a pretty good job, <laughs> but let's Let, not let's get not into that. Yeah. <laughs> you mentioned earlier on that you're doing things in Africa. Yes. With kind of the different things you're doing in Kenya and startups and helping entrepreneurship. How different is it working in, in Africa compared to working in, in Europe and, and Iceland and the other places you've been involved in? It's very different from working in Europe. It's not so different from working in Iceland or Greenland, where I've also been working, where things never go as planned. So, so I'm used to working in environments where things never go as planned. So <laughs> that helps me a lot in Africa. Uh, it does. So it's more of a blank canvas in, in, uh, in Africa. So if you want to paint a new picture, uh, that's the place to start. And if you think about, uh, I mean, the average age in, in Africa is 19.4 years. Uh, we have the, the fastest growth in human population there. We have the fastest growth of cities. So every six months, you need to uh, build an entire New York City in Africa because the cities are growing so fast. And if we think about it that way, it's actually a fabulous opportunity to rethink the city of the future. So if we had the opportunity to redesign New York every six months, how would we do it? You know, what would be the approach? How would we build the infrastructure? Would we, how much uh, space would we have for, for private cars? What would be the public transportation system? You know, questions like that are very, very interesting. You know, would we build uh, centralized grids like we have or would we build microgrids and uh, focus more on home production of energy uh, or, or water collection even or, or what else? So uh, it really opens up opportunities of different kinds of thinking. So instead of when we're bu building and developing those cities in Africa, instead of thinking like we see in some places, oh, we're going to follow the American dream of the 1950s. And we're thinking, oh, that was a mistake. Maybe it was right in the 1950s, but for, for modern times, it's a mistake. So let's use all the new technologies that we have and, and in, in IoT and, and uh, sustainable design, etc., and implement that and think, okay, how, you know, what is the perfect city for, for Africa in 2050?
and what is the perfect city for the climate and uh, uh, environment of Af- Africa. So how do you go about thinking about that? How do you go about kind of planning and and sketching that out? Or Well, I do, don't do any urban planning. So um, in, in this sense, my role is more of, of just being an inspiration and pointing out different ideas and, and different ways of, of thinking. Uh, I do workshops. Uh, did workshop in Lusaka on, on on the future city of Lusaka and how would that look like and and what should be the role of Lusaka and one of the things I I want cities in Africa to think about is what their role on the continent will be if we think about cities in in Europe they have roles Frankfurt is a financial center München is a is a car city and so is Stuttgart. And Paris is is you know art and 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 fashion and financial center. Milan is is fashion. So you know every city has a different role and a different image when we when we think about it. Uh, some are food, some are fashion, some are some sort of industry. And the same should apply to to African cities. And as it is now, African cities are primarily happening, uh, but not planned. So I want to see them uh, implementing a strategy so that Nairobi thinks, okay, we want to be the financial center of Africa. And uh, uh, Kinshasa wants to be the, the fashion metropole of, of Africa or, or, you know, or what else. So, uh, so it's almost when you're talking about innovation and, and vision and things like that, you're, you're going with a dream to start with. Yes. And then work, so it's kind of that, what's the, what's the ultimate dream? Yes, and, and then working back from that to think about solutions and how it fits together and the planning and stuff like that. So- it, it comes down to the basic question: What do you want to be when you grow up? So, <laughs> so as simple as that. Yeah. So, and and then we think about the steps. Okay, what do we need to get there? You know, what are the 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 resources that we need to attract? What is the credibility that we have to get there? So that that's where we look into our history. You know, what is it in our culture? What is is it in our history? What it is in our current resources that we have that, that gives us credibility in achieving this dream. Uh, and then we think about what are we lacking? What do we need uh, to become a regional hub uh, uh, for that dream or a global hub if, if we are thinking that big? And then we build up a strategy on how to attract the right companies, the right investment and the right talent. So it's, it's, uh, it has to be a very good uh, partnership and cooperation between government, uh, private sector, universities, which are very important in, in, in this regard. Uh, and then the public, of course. I try and get people talking about change in innovation yeah. with the things we record. It feels very much that you're on the innovation end where whether it's space and you're trying to pu- push the yes. final frontier without using cliches or, or Africa or things, like that, that's what really kind of excites you, the new, the innovation, the, the yes. stuff like that. Yes, so, so I suffer from, from insatiable curiosity. And uh, uh, whether it's uh, different cultures, whether it's ancient history or the future. Um, but for the last 10 years, I've primarily been focusing on, on future communities. Primarily on Earth, but now it's, it's <laughs> shifting space to space. <laughs> which, is, um, which is amazing. So I just need to get my head around that slightly. But, but I think um, one of the things I... I quite often ask people about is when they when they've changed a brand when they've done this in their own life when they've changed something you mean your personal brand yes Yes. or or not so much your personal brand but a brand you use or consume and I think with you I'm going to ask a slightly different question because you you had you had the last burger in Iceland is is this right this is the McDonald's conversation yes yes, that's correct 
It's the the uh, uh, most famous and least interesting thing that I've done. <laughs> um, so I bought a cheeseburger. Okay. So just a standard McDonald's cheeseburger? Yes. Okay. With fries. Okay. And uh, then I did nothing with it. And that has become uh, a world news story twice. <laughs> twice? <laughs> yes. Okay. First, when, when uh, the world found out that I had a burger that I had done nothing with. And then when they found, realized that it was now 10 years where I had done nothing with that burger. <laughs> so when so, you say you've done nothing with it, you, you just left it <clears throat> in a bag in the garage or... Yes. So the story is I, I bought a cheeseburger and fries just before McDonald's closed down in Iceland. So this was after the collapse in 2008. Things were going really bad for the Icelandic economy. And in October 2009, McDonald's decided to close the shops in Iceland. So they shut all their restaurants, yes. no more McDonald's in Iceland. Yes, correct. And there still is no McDonald's in Iceland, okay. except my cheeseburger. So, <laughs> so I took this paper bag that I got the burger in and the fries. I put it on a shelf in my garage and then I just forgot about it. And it wasn't until three years later when I was moving from Iceland to Denmark that I was cleaning out my garage. Uh, and then I found this paper bag on the shelf and I was like... <gasps> My cheeseburger. <laughs> and, you know, I have a lot of kids, so so I don't know if you have, but, but uh, you know, if they forget the sandwich in the school bag yeah. over a weekend or yeah. even worse, over a summer holiday, yeah. then in, if it's a summer holiday, you need to throw out the school bag and, and, you know, that's it. So I was a bit worried what it would look like when I would open the, the bag. So I, I open the paper bag, I take up the paper box uh, that the burger is in and I open the paper box and I look inside. I see that it looks like I bought it 15 minutes ago. And there was no mold and no nothing. And the same with the fries. And so my next question was, I mean, I couldn't really throw it out. Uh, um, and I didn't want to take it with me to Denmark because, I mean, we've McDonald's in Denmark. And so there's no need. And I didn't want to throw it out because this was like the last McDonald's in Iceland and was part of, of history because of the economic collapse and McDonald's yeah. stopping and all that. So it was a historical artifact. So, like you do with historical artifacts, I called the National Museum. And they said yes, and they took it in. And it was there for a year until they got a specialist to look at their new artifacts. And he saw food. And he was like, oh, this is food? We can't preserve that? You need to throw that out. But luckily, they called me. And, and uh, uh, I was working for a hostel at the time. Uh, and I offered them to put it on display, which they did. And then we put a webcam on it. And so there has been a live stream from the burger ever since. So that's uh, since 2015, I think it was. So and the, the last burger in Iceland, last McDonald's burger in Iceland, yes. is, has been on a live stream. For five years now. For five years. Yes, correct. So this story has gone around the world a couple of times yeah. now and uh, attracted millions of visitors to the webcam uh, and several visitors to the burger itself. Which is on a remote hostel in southern Iceland. So people have actually gone in person. To... Yes, yeah, okay. yes, yeah. So it's it's a destination now. <laughs> <laughs> so and and now the, the latest development in the story is the response from Burger King. So the, the Burger King and McDonald's have been quiet about this. Uh, none of them had, has referred to my burger. All McDonald's did was saying that their burgers would dry out. That's why they wouldn't mold. The, becomes like biscuits or something. Yeah. But now Burger King has launched an international campaign where they have uh, pictures of molded burgers. So your burger was the thing that inspired the Burger King campaign? Uh, everyone seems to assume so, yes. They, they don't say that publicly, but uh, everyone seems to assume so, yes. 
fascinating story. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, that's how I've influenced the brand or changed the brand. So it's been great talking to you, Hyotta. I hope I pronounced that rightly. Um, you don't, but nobody does. So don't <laughs> worry. <laughs> this podcast is becoming more about names I can't pronounce than, than anything else. But um, it, it's really inspirational to hear hear you speak and the things you talk about and the things you've done. And I love your positive outlook on the world. I love the world. And I've been fortunate enough to to really get to travel and get to know people in different places and, and different conditions and situations. And, and no matter where I come, people are wonderful. Which is a, a great way to finish. So Hyotta is very much a, a Nordic future maker. And, and I hope you've enjoyed the conversation that we've had. Um, I'm hoping to meet more people like him in, in coming weeks and months. If you've enjoyed it, then please subscribe to the podcast. And I hope you listen again in the future. Thanks for your time. Excellent. Thank you.